Jewish Education and Media is pleased to present L'Chaim, a program that highlights the people, issues, and events of importance to the Jewish community. Now here is your host, Rabbi Mark Golub. I'm Mark Golub. And America has been a godsend for the Jewish people. Although through the 1950s there was anti-Semitism and Jewish quotas in colleges and restricted neighborhoods and clubs, discrimination of Jews in hiring. At the same time, there's never been institutionalized or governmental anti-Semitism. George Washington's iconic letter to the Jews of the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island, articulated the fundamental American commitment to freedom from any state-sanctioned religion with the words, happily, the government of the United States gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance. And certainly for the last 60 years, American Jewry has participated fully in and benefited from every social, cultural, political aspect of American life. The United States has been the best diaspora community in the history of the Jewish people. And a hallmark of America's uniqueness, which has been to the good fortune of the American Jew, is its commitment to the principles contained in the Bill of Rights, beginning with what many consider to be the most important First Amendment, which guarantees freedom from the establishment of religion freedom of religious practice, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and the freedom to peacefully assembly to protest the government to redress public grievances. In addition, the First Amendment also reflects a fundamental concept of American democracy, that minorities are protected from majority rule, from the tyranny of a majority mob. And therefore, if a majority of Americans want to limit someone's right to free speech, the Bill of Rights protects every American's right to free speech against the majority. Jews always do better in a country that is a democracy without a state religion. And as a minority, Jews always do better when the law protects people's right to free expression. And that's why any assault on the First Amendment should be extremely troubling to any Jew. Any assault on the First Amendment is a Jewish issue. And in contemporary America, we are experiencing that very assault. The most glaring examples of the way social media, which have become the way in which millions of Americans get their news, and which influence the way many Americans think. Social media feels entitled to decide what is appropriate for Americans to say and to read. Social media giants like Facebook, Twitter, and Google YouTube have removed material from their sites because they had a bias of some kind against what was being said. Very often, that bias would appear to be political. I hope many of you remember that I was a victim of this censorship when my lecture on what it means to be a liberal Zionist in America 
was taken down for a period of time by YouTube. Alan Dershowitz, recognized universally as one of the strongest defenders of human rights, civil rights, and the First Amendment right of free speech, was also victimized by YouTube when some of his videos he did for Dennis Prager's website, PragerU, simply explaining the realities of the state of Israel, were taken down by YouTube. This is the danger of permitting a mob mentality to restrict free speech. It leads to venal censorship. But it's not just social media. It's the mainstream media as well. One of America's most respected journalists, Barry Weiss, wrote a scathing critique of the New York Times in her resignation letter, claiming that the Times had failed to learn, quote, the centrality of the free exchange of ideas to a democratic society, unquote. An editor of the Times op-ed page was forced to resign because he made the fatal flaw of accepting an op-ed piece written by a conservative congressman. The executive editor and senior vice president of the Philadelphia Inquirer had to resign for having committed the sin of publishing a headline dealing with the riots of earlier this year that read, Buildings Matter Too. And one of, the, one of the oldest newspapers in America, the New York Post, ran a story detailing what was found on Hunter Biden's laptop, which at least raised questions about what Vice President Biden did or did not know about his son's dealings in China, Ukraine, and elsewhere. The story was, in essence, killed by mainstream print and TV media, and worse, by the social media giants who felt they had the right to determine what their customers do or do not read in the run-up to a presidential election. The firing or forcing people out of their jobs or banning them from formal institutions is so pervasive, it's been given a name, cancel culture. Cancel culture is right out of Orwell's 1984 and is a form of wiping a person off the American radar. It's insidious, it is vicious, and it's dangerous to American democracy, especially to minorities, including American Jews. And so when liberal author, liberal author, Abigail Schreier, writes a book critical of a social trend that condones giving children sex-altering hormones, she is canceled. Amazon refuses to list her book, and the big box giant Target bends to mob rule and actually bans the book from their bookshelves. And then there's the halls of academia, colleges and universities, where administrations permit in sometimes, in some instances, collaborate with progressive mobs that deny conservatives the right to express their perspective on issues. And for American Jews who care about the well-being of the state of Israel, anti-Israel mobs regularly block pro-Israel speakers from offering a pro-Israel perspective. The justification, of course, is that the mob is protecting its community from hate speech. But what constitutes hate speech? And when, if ever, is it appropriate to deny free speech 
because one hates the content of the other's message. The antidote to censorship and cancel culture is embodied in the well-known line, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. As I was growing up, the son of parents who were passionate liberal Democrats, who hated everything Joe McCarthy stood for, who taught me the importance of free speech, even if it meant permitting Nazi sympathizers to march in the streets of a Holocaust survivor neighborhood of Skokie, Illinois. All of this is troubling to the core. For American Jews, these issues should be in the forefront of our concern for an assault on free speech and cancel culture can easily evolve into a mob rule which believes it is entitled to cancel minority rights, which would include Jewish rights. And on this edition of Al-Khayim, these are the issues I will be privileged to explore with an esteemed panel of three who have devoted much of their adult lives to the study of the First Amendment's freedom of speech and to the defense of that freedom in alphabetical order. Let me introduce them to you. Floyd Abrams is a leading authority and expert on constitutional law. Having argued 13 cases before the Supreme Court of the United States, many of his arguments have been adopted as authoritative interpretations of the First Amendment and free speech. Floyd Abrams serves for 15 years as a professor of First Amendment law at Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism and is a senior counsel of the litigation firm of Cahill, Gordon, and Rindell, LLP. The author of books on the First Amendment, it includes Speaking Freely, Trials of the First Amendment, and Yale Law School has established the Floyd Abrams Institute for Freedom of Expression with the mission of promoting free speech, scholarship, and law reform on questions related to the media. Alan Dershowitz, a recognized scholar of US constitutional law, as well as being a high profile criminal lawyer, is Professor Emeritus at Harvard Law School, where at the time he became professor, he was the youngest person ever to hold a professorship at Harvard Law, where he then taught for some 40 plus years. Throughout his career, Alan Dershowitz has championed First Amendment rights and has been fearless in speaking truth to power. Alan Dershowitz currently hosts his own daily podcast. It's called The Dershow. He's also a most prolific writer, and his current book, as we tape this edition of L'Chaim, is most appropriate to our subject at hand. It is called Cancel Culture, the Latest Attack on Free Speech and Due Process. And it is a special pleasure to welcome for the first time to JBS, Nadine Strassen, the former president of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, she became the first woman to head the nation's largest and oldest civil liberties organization, a position which she served in for 17 years. Nadine Strassen is currently a member of the ACLU's National Advisory Council, as well as a professor emerita at New York Law School and a member of the Council 
on foreign relations. And at New York Law School in 2019, at their commencement ceremony, Nadine Strassen attained the unique distinction of winning both an award for outstanding teaching and the award for best book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. And for me personally, I, mean, I have a very close relationship with Alan. I know Floyd from prior uh, Lachayams and Nadine, I know of you. I've seen you many times in many contexts, including on television. All of it. it is such a kick, a huge kick for me. It's an honor for me to have three people like yourselves who are as distinguished as you can get on the American scene. Joining me for a discussion, which as you heard in my intro, I believe is of critical importance, not simply to America, but to the American Jewish community. I thank all three of you for joining me on this edition of L'Chaim. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Mark. And if I can add my one of my greatest credentials, which you omitted, is that I had the privilege of studying constitutional law with Alan Dershowitz. I did not know that. How about Thank that, Alan? You. Well, I'm so proud. I'm so proud of her. And she has done so much great work. And I've worked with Floyd over the years. You know, when I think of Floyd and Nadine sitting in the same on the same Zoom, I'm tempted to paraphrase John Kennedy when he said, the greatest concentration of First Amendment scholars since Thomas Jefferson sat alone in the Oval Office. So uh, we're, we're fortunate to have those two extraordinary Absolutely. experts. Absolutely, absolutely. Again, I'm, I am flattered that you would agree to be a part of this discussion. Okay, I wanna begin by asking each of you to respond to the argument that there is something appropriate, maybe even necessary, to limit free speech by hate speech. And Floyd, I want you to begin. Try to explain to us how you see the confluence and also the conflict between free speech and hate speech. The, the prime reason that the First Amendment uh, has been interpreted to protect hate speech, uh, and it has, uh, and it does, is a more general concern about the government deciding what can be said and what not be said. Uh, that, that equation is somewhat different, in my view, quite different with respect to private parties. But as regards the, the government itself, there is sweeping protection for even the vilest sort of uh, hate speech, except in that most extraordinary circumstance where it's aimed at causing violence and is about to cause violence or situation like that. But, but, but the reason, the justification for allowing it is not that, that it is always worth hearing. Uh, it, it is that we don't trust the censor to make decisions mm -hmm. about who may be heard and who not. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Alan, what's your answer to the same question, the, the, the tension between free speech and hate speech? Well, first of all, hate speech, as Floyd correctly said, is protected by the Constitution, and so is cancel culture. Interestingly enough, when cancel culture is organized by individuals, not by government, unlike McCarthyism, where there was a combination of government and also red channels and uh, blacklisting, 
But cancel culture, when engaged in by private people, is also entitled to constitutional protection. That's the great paradox. The censors, the people who would censor us, get the benefit of our First Amendment. Look, we, we shouldn't overstate uh, the argument against uh, censoring hate speech in this respect. Uh, I, I believe that hate speech should be protected by the Constitution, but Canada doesn't, and Germany doesn't, and uh, other countries who are Western democracies that have full and complete freedom of speech don't protect hate speech. So there is the slippery slope argument, of course. Uh, once you eliminate the protection for hate speech, where do you stop? And who gets to mm -hmm. define it? And yes. that's why I'm strongly in favor of protecting hate speech, but democracy could survive, uh, sometimes only temporarily. In Germany, for example, um, Holocaust denial has been banned, but there's now a movement perhaps to eliminate that ban. It's been 70 years, etc. To everything there is a season. Uh, I, I hope that they in fact do eliminate the restrictions on Holocaust denial. And I just want to make one other point, uh, and that is you talked about the impact on the Jewish community. I think young Jews are very active in attempts to censor speech. I think many young Jews are on the forefront of the cancel culture. Mm -hmm. They're on the forefront of having fired Ron Sullivan for having dared to represent uh, Harvey o. Weinstein. They're on the forefront of attempts to get Google to restrict my speech and your speech on uh, explaining uh, Israel's right to exist. So this is not an issue that uh, separates people along religious lines. It may separate people along age lines and along ideological lines, but it's part of a larger process of I think radicals on the extreme left are now following radicals on the extreme right. They share in common one perspective. They know the truth, capital T. Well, why do you need dissent? What do you need opposing points of view? We know the truth. We also don't need due process. It's part of the same thing. Free speech and due process are part and parcel of the same thing. They require a process, an open process before you arrive at the truthing process. But if you already know the truth, why have due? If a woman accuses a man as I've been accused, why do you need to have a process for determining it? We know that women tell the truth and that men lie. You don't need a process. We know that radicals are telling the truth about uh, what's going on in the world. Why do you need to allow fascists or right-wingers to explain the truth? So due process and free speech go together. And hate speech is the camel's nose in the tent. Mm -hmm. If you permit censorship of hate speech, the limiting principles are hard to establish. That's why I, along with Floyd, strongly support constitutional protection for speech that I deeply abhor, abhor and wish didn't happen. Yes. But what I remember we discussed Skokie and you said that, yes, I mean, you are an Orthodox, you were, Orthodox, you were an Orthodox Jew growing up in Brooklyn and you have a great knowledge of and sympathy for all those who suffered in the Shoah, but you still supported the freedom of Americans dressed as Nazis to march through Skokie. Yeah, I was on the National Board of the ACLU at the time that some of this came up, and it was a great debate within the ACLU. It was a little before Nadine's time, but uh, people quit the ACLU over that issue, and uh, brave lawyers in Chicago um, stood up for not the rights of the Nazis, but the uh, eliminate the power of the government 
to determine who can march through Skokie because the same theory that would have prevented um, Nazis from marching through Skokie could have been used to prevent Martin Luther King from marching through white neighborhoods in a provocative way yes. to provoke people into violence, which it sometimes did. And so you can't have free speech for me, but not for thee. And Alan, that was, I recently reread the ACLU brief in the Skokie case. I had just graduated from law school with uh, that wonderful course from Alan under my belt and had become involved at the lowest levels of the ACLU, the entry level as a volunteer lawyer uh, at the beginning of my law practice in Minneapolis. And I became really involved in these debates. And I have to say, especially as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. To me, this was a no brainer because it was the absence of free speech that really helped the rise of Hitler. And one of the first things that Hitler did, of course, was to completely extinguish free speech. Many people are surprised to learn that during the Weimar Republic, they, uh, there were very strong hate speech laws that were strictly enforced. Many Nazis were prosecuted and they really uh, used these opportunities as propaganda mm -hmm. platforms. Now, in addition to the fact that the uh, lawyer who argued the case for the ACLU in uh, Illinois happened to be Jewish, uh, mm -hmm. the national executive director of the ACLU at the time, R.A. Nyer, was himself a Holocaust survivor. Most of his, he was born in Germany. Most of his extended family was slaughtered by the Nazis. He and his immediate family managed to escape. Uh, and as Ari wrote a book about this shortly afterwards, which is a classic book, I, I highly recommend it to everybody, called Defending My Enemy. And in it, he makes the point, I'm gonna paraphrase it. Uh, he said, you know, I love free speech, I love free speech, but I loathe the Nazis even more than I love free speech. So if I were convinced that censoring Nazi speech would have prevented their rise to power, would have prevented the Holocaust, I would have been in favor of it. And he then goes on to uh, point out the facts that I've, I've already summarized. And that's one of the points that I really want to emphasize in my book on hate speech, I analyze the evidence from the countries that Alan has mentioned, and most countries in the world do suppress uh, hateful speech in a way that the United States does not. Um, there is absolutely no evidence that that is quelling problems of anti-Semitism and other forms of hatred. Look at Germany, which to this day has some of the strongest anti-hate speech laws in the world. We know the terrible problems of anti-Semitic violence, violence against refugees, violence against other minorities. Uh, the fact that within the past couple of years, Angela Merkel had to appoint for the first time ever in German history, a cabinet level minister for anti-Semitism, that the head of the Jewish community in Germany had to warn Jews not to wear a yarmulke in public. Could things be even worse if they uh, didn't enforce these laws? That's you know impossible to prove, but it's very clear um, that the laws are not sufficient. And many human rights activists argue that they are actually counterproductive because the concept of hate speech is so inherently subjective 
that they hand over power to whoever wields power in the community. And that is never going to be Jews or other minority groups. Mm -hmm. Good point. All of you, superb. Um, Florida, I want to pick up on something you said. You drew a distinction between government and I guess outside government, private business. And, and at the moment, that refers to the kind of places that have been censoring based on the notion of hate speech and they have the right to decide. And at the moment, Twitter and Facebook and Google YouTube, they are not public utilities, they're private companies. But I'm wondering whether any of the kind of censorship we have seen in those online tech giants, whether that bothers you, even if it is outside the government. Well, yes, some of it bothers me, but let me start with the other side of it. Some of it doesn't bother me. Some of it that would violate the First Amendment uh, if this were the government uh, is what I view as editorial judgments of the sort that we would not blame any newspaper for making. Uh, well, take Nazi speech, for example. Take false speech about health issues, for example. Seems to me perfectly appropriate for social media entities to make their own decisions about whether they want their product, so to speak, uh, to be contaminated with that sort of uh, expression. Uh, and so uh, I have no objection for, uh, take an example, for Twitter uh, to put notations when the president lies about certain uh, health in particular related matters. I have no problem with that at all. I think they're serving the public by do doing it all. And I certainly would have no problem with uh, uh, Facebook uh, affirming that they are not 100% First Amendment guided. That is to say that they would not take a, a full page swastika, uh, uh, even though the, time, the, the, the government couldn't ban it and that they would not allow certain views uh, to be expressed. Now that has its dangers, which are obvious, and that they are all the same dangers, or many, many of them, that all of us agree led or leads to our affirming broad First Amendment protection in these areas. Then so how, then how, how do you, on the one hand, adopt your position, and then how do you deal with the dangers? From your perspective, make choices. How there are dangers, and and certain speech does have dangers. Uh, the, the 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 question for a private entity uh, is, is to assess those dangers, on, unless the private entity chooses to be bound by pure First Amendment standards. I polled a class of mine at Yale Law School not long ago after a full class in which we were talking about social media. And, and I, my final question to them was, how many of you would want Facebook to be First Amendment ruled internally decided, of course, 
but all the same standards, which is to say allowing basically anything goes and hardly any of them were. And that's not in my view, cancel culture. That seems to me an entirely appropriate and even wise decision. Okay, let me ask you one more question and then I want Alan and Nadine to jump in. Uh, yep. The Those who argue against your position and it was, it's interesting, you compare them to print journalism. Print journalism is subject to um, suits of libel. The government has given exceptions to tech companies like Google, Twitter, Facebook, where they're not held responsible for anything that's said. You can't sue Google when it, if it says, if it puts something up that isn't true. You can't sue Twitter and you can't sue Facebook. And there, there are those who argue that if you want this to, if in the future they're arguing, mm, yeah. these companies should, if you want to compare them to print media, they should be subject to the same laws of libel as the New York Times is. What do you stand on that? First, uh, the only answers that I would uh, uh, sort of agree to in this area is maybe section 230 goes too far. Maybe yeah. that section of law, which gives that immunity goes too far. That said, one of the great benefits of that section and a very great one indeed, is that it has allowed this medium to develop, this medium of communication and to develop in a way that otherwise simply would have been impossible. Facebook has 3 billion subscribers. There okay. has to be some way, some way to, to say either we're, we're willing to take the risks and, the, and they're not just risks, the damages of false statements being made on Facebook by, by whoever is talking uh, or not. Uh, okay, okay. My, my own view, is that it's worth taking those I risks, I but, but I certainly got the point. I have a suggestion. Um, I'm troubled about Section 230. Obviously, 230 gives blanket total immunity to any uh, platform, um, but it doesn't require them to act like platforms. Uh, more and more, these platforms are acting like publishers. So let me give you an example from my own personal experience. So uh, yes, um, all these internet things indicate that when President Trump says something, it's a lie. And then a woman goes on the same um, Twitter or whatever and says, Alan Dershowitz is a pedophile. And they don't say it's a lie. And so people reading that say, gee, you know, they have the power to call something a lie and they have the power to say it's not a lie. So now we should probably believe the claim that Dershowitz is a pedophile because they didn't flag it as a lie. So my suggestion is that 230 have an additional point. And that is every media company, every um, online has to check a box. Are you a platform or are you a publisher? You choose. If you're a platform, behave like a platform. Everything goes on, including swastikas, unfortunately. Everything goes on. You're like the taxi cab. 
you have to take people to their destination. If a person says to you, I'm going to the polling place to vote, I'm gonna vote for Trump, you gotta take them there. You can't say, no, I don't want you to vote for Trump, I won't take you there. So you have to make a choice, but I think the current situation is somewhat untenable. And that is we see these companies moving more and more to being publishers that make editorial decisions. Um, Rabbi Golub mentioned that. Um, um, uh, I, I wasn't taken down, but I gave a, I gave a talk to the to the um, uh, uh, a group of people in which I talked about the history, the origins of Israel, uh, the history of Israel, how it, how it had a good birth certificate, how it was born by the law, had it it was born by the sword and had to born by the pen and defend itself by the sword, and and Google listed it as un unavailable to children. Uh, they made an editorial decision. Now, it's Floyd, I really would love to, to, to not have a debate with you, but at least a conversation with you about whether you think it's okay to have these companies um, be immune from all defamation suits and at the same time allowed to make editorial decisions. I thought about these these issues a lot because the, the name of the game these days in terms of free speech, including for hate speech, is social media. I mean, in the United States, the government has uh, consistently been restrained by the Supreme Court from censoring hate speech all across the ideological spectrum of justices. This is a deeply entrenched principle. Uh, government may never uh, discriminate against speech because of dislike, even loathing of its viewpoint. But for all practical purposes, most of the conversation today is taking place on social media as the Supreme Court itself recognized in a 2017 case in an opinion by Justice Kennedy, he said, you know, it used to be debatable what is the most important forum for the exchange of ideas among people and between we the people and those we elect to, to be accountable to us in government positions. He said it's no longer debatable. It's clear that it's the internet in general and social media platforms in particular. Now you take that undeniable fact and couple it with the legal point, which I totally agree with Floyd and, and Alan is correct, that these companies are not subject to the First Amendment themselves. To the contrary, uh, they have their own First Amendment rights. So here we have the worst of both worlds. On the one hand, giant private companies exercising more sensorial power than any government ever has. In Facebook's last report, and who knows how accurate it is, but according to their own report, which you assume is not going to overstate, um, they are saying that they are taking down um, millions of posts that they deem to be hate speech every month. Just one company every month. And you think of all the governments around the world in throughout history, could it possibly have reached that level? So unsurpassed power beyond what governments have exercised on the one hand, but not constrained by the Constitution, either the Due Process Clause, which Alan has mentioned, or the First Amendment. Um, so there's no process available, no First Amendment claim available to people like all of us who have been, you know, had our speech suppressed. I too have been a victim of YouTube speech suppression. Uh, I do oppose straightforward government regulation, but when you look at 
uh, what has evolved with those companies, uh, that they started with a much more free speech friendly approach, but because there has been so much pressure on them to crack down on hate speech, disinformation, extremist content, terrorist content, those are usually this, the objects of, of controversy. There hasn't been enough counter pressure um, that we really want to have um, more free speech, less dominance by the platforms in terms of making editorial um, decisions that are at best arbitrary and capricious and at worst outright discriminatory. So what I and the ACLU and organizations that focus specifically on digital free speech rights, uh, such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation, have been advocating uh, technological uh, solutions that seem to be well within the power of these companies, uh, that they empower users to choose our own filtering approaches, our own content curation uh, algorithms, because right now we think we're making our own choices, but we're not doing that. The evidence available shows that uh, thanks to the uh, extremely detailed profile that these uh, platforms are able to put together about our online behavior and our preferences, thanks to their constant surveillance, uh, that each of us is getting a different stream of information, uh, which not only predicts our behavior, but probably even manipulates our behavior, which is antithetical to individual autonomy and free speech. So these would be areas where I think there could be content neutral government regulation, uh, matters of accountability and transparency, user empowerment. I think of it as a kind of consumer protection. I wanna ask Floyd to respond. You know, there are people who feel that Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube have an agenda of their own, a, a philosophical agenda of their own, that they tend to lean left and that they have become, as Nadine just said, the real distributors of information to the vast majority of Americans. And that something should be done to limit the abuse of that privilege. So you say, for example, you're happy that they labeled what Donald Trump said about some health issue a lie. Are you equally happy that Twitter did not allow the New York Post to have anyone retweet their story about Hunter Biden's laptop, which at the very least raise questions which ought to be followed and answered. And at the worst indicated that former Vice President Biden, who is now president-elect, as we basically meet right now, he knew much more than he said he knew about his son's involvement in economic enterprises, whether it's in China, Ukraine, wherever. And the New York Post is a fully legitimate respected newspaper, it publishes this story and Twitter won't let people see it. I wanna know, Floyd, are you as happy with that decision as you were with the decision to mark Donald Trump's comments 
which you, I guess, believe were lies as lies? No, uh, and I have no doubt that what I would view and surely you view as at least errors or incorrect decisions in this area uh, are, are made. Uh, and uh, it's a good thing for us to criticize them when they, when they go off base. And I'm sure that, that, that the level of criticism and lying behind the criticism is always the possibility of getting rid of section 230 if, if the criticism is shared enough. But, but I'm not surprised that on, on a number of occasions they will act in what I think is inappropriately. It's uh, not, but, not inappropriate. It's a partisan political position. Well, I don't think so. I know you have political views of that sort, but I don't share your politics. So as a result, we, we differ, I, I, I suspect, on what is, what is factually wrong and what is simply an expression of opinion. Okay. Uh, but wait, you don't know my political position. I've heard it just or in your introduction. What did, I, what did I say that was in any way partisan politics? Not partisan politics, ideological, conservatively oriented, and you know, very, very critical, as you have every First Amendment right to be yes. uh, of, of, of these uh, organizations. Yes, I uh, am very critical. I understand. And I believe my criticism. I that right of yours. I believe. If, if my, I may say, hold on, I, hold on. Hold on. Okay. I believe my criticism is fueled and driven by a commitment, a liberal commitment, to the First Amendment. And I understand the distinction you want to draw in the in when it comes to government. Then you then you're a pretty strict First Amendment guy, but. Right. What worries me, and I don't know how to handle this, and maybe Nadine or, or Alan, you'll be able to speak about this as well. I know that I am very troubled by what I see as a social pattern. Yeah. And the social pattern is that people with certain ideas, even if I disagree with them, Floyd, are being canceled and are being censored and are being- Why should they? Why should, they, why should they not make their own judgments on those matters? See, I, I can see an argument, a strong argument. They're too powerful. They have too much impact uh, and the like, and there are too few of them. Uh, so, so their impact is even more exaggerated as a result. Uh, uh, and antitrust suits or without getting legalistic about it, some sort of limitations on their size for in one basis or another, uh, certainly is something that I would take very seriously. But, but I want them to engage in some level of decision-making. But do you want them to have immunity? I'm sorry. Yeah, do, go you on. Want them, do you want them to have immunity if they engage in decision-making or are they entitled to engage in decision-making only if they are willing to forfeit their immunity? And if, if Congress had called you as a witness, as they probably will, uh, and asked how to modify 230, how would you recommend that making that modification? 
I don't have an answer uh, 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 now, and I didn't. I, I picked up the phone not so long ago and called another First Amendment type, uh, more academically skilled than I, to ask him what he thought, and he didn't have a great answer either. Right. So, so uh, all I can do now is, is to acknowledge and concede that one needs an answer to that question. Uh, and and the area I'm thinking about, is there some way to give less than 100% protection, but still enough protection to allow yeah. them to comment on, or, or to say to Alex Jones, you know, when, when he's beating up on the parents of, of, of these poor murdered children in, in Connecticut, that, you know, we choose not to have you we choose not to carry you. I, I think that's an important part of what they, they not only would have a First Amendment right to do, but, but of, of the total package uh, as, as I would want it to be about these enormously powerful uh, uh, entities, which, which I, and I agree with all of you on this, have such impact on our society. I want to say something about this because I've actually spent a lot of time looking into 230 and the literature on it so much that I realized that I don't know enough. There are whole scholars and groups of scholars that literally specialize in this very rarefied, complicated topic of intermediary liability. There are entire law school programs on it. And um, what both of you are saying is completely consistent with their bottom line uh, conclusion, which is one has to move very carefully and very deliberately because there is such a great potential of doing more harm than good. Uh, it's correct and appropriate that we're focusing on the downsides of Section 230 uh, immunity, which is not, by the way, complete. It never has been complete from the beginning. Uh, exceptions were made for federal criminal law and intellectual property law. Since then, additional limitations have been added, which uh, the consensus is were well-intended, but have had enormously adverse, unintended sensorial consequences. Uh, some scholars whose work I deeply respect are recommending what seem to be modest uh, but important amendments that could be consistent with the concerns that both of you have raised, uh, all three of you have raised, for example, uh, Danielle Citron, who recently won one of the MacArthur Genius Awards, um, has proposed together with Benjamin Wittes that there be a good faith responsibility on the part of these companies. Uh, the reason why you have to be careful is when you think of the consequences of tightening up on their responsibility to serve as active gatekeepers, including Alan, the responsibility that if they're going to put labels, uh, some material, that that means they have to label or all material or consciously not label it. We know what the predictable consequence would be that would, they would start to clamp down, uh, only po allow uh, third party postings by uh, people or only allow those third party postings that they had been able to screen. So we would be back to like the three major or four major TV networks and we would lose 
the enormous incalculable benefit of the internet as serving as a platform for all of us amplifying the voices of uh, minority groups getting back to our theme of of jews um, uh, individuals who are dissident and unpopular and i and and social movements all across the ideological spectrum political movements political campaigns that are able to take advantage of this cheap easily accessible pervasive medium uh, to become engaged in politics in an absolutely unprecedented way. So for all of the abuses, I really don't want to throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. And I'm very happy that very serious, careful work is being done to examine uh, significant but not overly dramatic uh, re uh, revisions to Section 230. But I hope the goal, I hope the end result is not to introduce a good faith uh, criteria. I can't imagine anything more inimical to the First Amendment than uh, giving uh, giant corporations uh, deference on what constitutes good faith. Look, I, I'm not with Mark on the issue that I, I, don't, I don't believe that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are a partisan or even consciously ideological. Um, but I do think that their opinions are often uh, subjective and what they regard as untruth and what they regard as dangerous can reflect this kind of often just generational bias. And uh, look, my favorite kinds of questions, as Floyd said just before, is ones that we don't know the answer to. And this is a question we don't know the answer to. All three of us agree that the 230 uh, exception seems a little overbroad. We all agree that eliminating the, uh, the, the uh, protection completely would really be a, a disaster. I like both of your suggestions that we think of nuanced ways, but I reject out of hand any kind of good faith criteria. I think there have to be very transparent criteria. At the very least, they have to announce that the fact that they say something is a lie doesn't mean that if they don't censor it, they believe everything that they allow on is the truth. Yeah. They have to communicate more effectively with their audience as to what their criteria are and how we should interpret not only their actions, but even more important, their inactions. And I think that's a very good idea, Alan. And you know, you say some of the determinations are subjective. I reject that. A hundred percent of these determinations are inevitably subjective. Uh, dis one person's disinformation or fake news is somebody else's gospel truth. Uh, you know, one person's hate speech is somebody else's cherished speech. One person's extremist content is somebody else's freedom fighter content. That's why I believe that we individuals should be empowered to make that choice for ourselves and not allow it to be uh, exercised top down for us by any powerful entity, be it government or a company. Let me tell you, I have a close friend who is at Google. And when I put this to him, his answer, it's not a complete answer, it's that human beings don't make these decisions. Yeah. They're made by algorithms. They're made by things that you, Alan, just don't understand. But they're it's, programmed by human beings and they reflect course, our biases. Of course they are. But when you look at the programming, he showed me them, they do appear to be pretty objective uh, because when the people 
put in the programs, they don't have in mind, will this help the Democrats or the Republicans? Well, I agree with they that. Have, they really have in mind, oh. will this help our customer base? Oh. Will it help in other Look, they are biased. They're biased in favor of their own bottom line. That's the yes. ultimate bias that all these companies have. But, the, you know, I, and I didn't mean the partisan bias because I reject that, too. And I've actually testified in Congress uh, on these issues. I was the free speech expert on a panel with uh, the other people who were top representatives of uh, Twitter, Google and Facebook. And I can tell you, every Democrat, every Republican on that panel all accused all of these companies of being politically biased against their parties. So um, we know that the conservatives are constantly complaining about um, anti-conservative bias, but the Democrats are constantly complaining that the companies have now bent over backwards to show that they're not biased in favor of conservatives. Uh, the bias that I meant and the lack of subject or the inherent subjectivity is that these concepts cannot be objectively defined. If you were to objectively look, for example, for certain words or terms, uh, that would not be helpful because the same term in a different context has an entirely different meaning. Uh, and we can't tell whether something is conveying a hateful message, even the N-word, the most reviled epithet, uh, if it's being used by Martin Luther King or by the United States Supreme Court in a case involving the KKK, uh, I don't think that that should be punished as hate speech. And I think most people uh, would agree with that, but I don't think an, an algorithm could detect that. And yet some professors, yes. coming back to something that Mark mentioned at the very beginning, uh, some professors have been put at peril for even reading Fired. that part of Martin Luther King's great speech. Fired. I, I gave a talk at a law school recently and I was shocked to learn, this is in the same vein, I think of cancel culture, uh, and it ties into social media, obviously, because we're talking about powerful forces in society that are not subject to First Amendment constraints and yet are having a very speech suppressive uh, impact, including a, a deep chilling impact. So at this law school, I was told that uh, at least one constitutional law professor is no longer teaching the Dred Scott decision uh, for fear that uh, students, uh, black students would be tr so traumatized by it um, that the professor would be subject well, to charges of even uh, worse. harassment. It's even worse. If I taught Dred Scott, I would take the position of the majority view. As a devil's advocate teacher, you remember yeah. me. As a teacher, yeah. I always take the opposing point of view. Uh, when I teach any controversial subject, because the students in the class often won't articulate the other point of view, I argue in my class, dressed for sex? Oh, of course. That's a legitimate defense. It's nonsense. It's horrible. But a professor has an obligation to present all alternative points of view. The reason I loved having Ted Cruz in my class is I didn't have to be the devil's advocate in that particular class. He was the devil. He presented all these arguments, so I didn't have to. But when I taught a class, I would always favor the death penalty. I would be opposed. I would say the N-word. Why is that so reviled? Hey, the K-word the K is worse. You know, I would make every possible argument that the students didn't want to hear. And you cannot do that today. You can't. Uh, it's, it's a blessing for me. I don't think it really is a blessing that I retired six years ago because I'd be involved in all kind of litigation today or I'd be banned from teaching. Uh, look at what happened to Ron Sullivan. My yeah. God, first African-American along with his wife, uh, they used to call them masters, deans of a college, great, great man, great lawyer. And for about 
uh, a month he represented Harvey Weinstein. He had previously, the year before, represented the, uh, the tight end of mm -hmm. the New England Patriots, who was accused of murdering two people in a gangland type killing. And, and nobody in his house said uh, that uh, uh, we're afraid, we're scared, uh, we're, we're in fear. That was not a problem, but because he represented the very unpopular Harvey right. Weinstein, he got fired. He got yeah, fired. I know and that. No, I'm, I'm no shocked. Felt, uh, yeah. No offense takes the position. Oh, no, he wasn't fired. How dare you say he was fired? His contract just wasn't renewed. Can you imagine Noah saying that if the person was fired because they discovered he was gay or they discovered he was a Muslim or in the 1930s, they discovered he was Jewish? Yeah. There is no difference under McCarthyism or modern forms of McCarthyism for firing somebody or not renewing their contract on the ground that he represented somebody. Or, or, you know, or, or I, I couldn't agree more, Alan. One example comes to mind for me is or not teaching first year law students. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, on the ground that those poor little dainty snowflakes couldn't, couldn't take it. Yeah. You know, it's there's such a double standard in terms of um, the re retributive uh, vengeance of social pressure against somebody who has um, dared to even quote even a civil rights icon using the n-word as martin luther king did at least twice maybe three times in his famous letter from a birmingham jail or daring to defend somebody accused of um, some kind of sexual assault this extreme punitive attitude at the very same time that our society wonderfully finally has been moving in a non-punitive direction when it comes to all kinds of other crimes, right? So for at least the past decade, we've had this strong movement towards so-called restorative justice, you know, repealing mandatory minimums, having a more rehabilitative attitude, Republicans and Democrats alike, even to people who are convicted of murder. But heaven forfend, you know, in one drunken teenage episode many years ago, you put something stupid and offensive on social media, Harvard is gonna retract its admission to you to study there. Um, many universities have retracted, and, and it seems as if um, various interveners are scouring social media accounts of various people, uh, young people, and bringing them to the attention of college admissions officers who are now retracting the, the admissions. I, I mean, that is the most harshly punitive um, measure to take against somebody at such a young stage of life for a relatively minor infraction. At Georgetown University today, faculty, not students like at Harvard, faculty are circulating a memo saying anybody who had anything to do with the Trump administration, probably even including me, although I, you know, I'm not a Trump supporter, I defended his I, against an unconstitutional impeachment. I believe it was an unconstitutional impeachment on the floor of the Senate. You could agree or disagree, but now um, uh, Georgetown would raise questions about whether I could speak to the students without hitting my heart and apologizing and going to some truth camp. Uh, and Harvard students want to do the same thing. Okay, Alan, Alan, does that yeah. bother, does that bother you? Of course. Does yeah. it bother you, Floyd? Yes, of course. Okay, even though it is non-governmental. That's right. That's, you know, I'm listening and I'm learning. I, it's just fabulous to listen to the three of you speak. But I want you to understand, as a lay person, mm -hmm. I worry 
about people who are denied their right to, to speak. And at the moment, it's not that I am conservative. It's that the people who be, are being prohibited from doing most of the speaking on college campuses, I, I'd love you to give me an example of how Facebook or Twitter uh, put up the words, it's a lie over something that came from a liberal source. I don't want the words a lie on anything. And there, I was taught when I was much younger, and Alan, you taught me a lot. Oh, yeah, the, best, the best way to combat hate speech is with free speech. Right. If somebody course. says something just vile, the answer is the truth that you see. Yeah, and of course. I, tr I, I trust that vision that was at the bedrock of the First mm -hmm. Amendment. And I, I trust it across the spectrum. And I'll say one more thing. And then again, I'd love to hear you what, what all three of you have to say. The argument made by some is that the best comparison of the tech giants, Twitter and uh, Facebook and Google, YouTube is AT&T is the phone company. At one point, if there was a phone company, would that phone, and it, it was not a public utility, would the phone company have the right to say to us, there are certain things you can discuss on the phone and certain things you can't discuss on the phone. Now, AT&T is, is uh, the phone companies now are viewed as utility. So they come under certain governmental regulations. In my own mind, and this is said by other people, this is my, not my, necessarily my own idea, the power and scope and reach of Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube is such that they are much more like a public utility than they are a private company. And you already talked about how they get this exclusion, this 230 exclusion, so that no one can sue them no matter what they say. Well, that's, but yeah. It, it, seems to, it seems to me that what we want to do as a society is protect people's right to free speech, even if it has nothing to do with the government. And it really bothers me if Twitter or any other uh, social media company thinks okay. it has the right to tell me what let I me, should or should not read and whether what is posted is a lie or not. If it's a lie, let somebody who knows the truth post as well. Now, you know, anybody who wants to can respond. I want to bring this closer to home. Don't think about Twitter, don't think about Google. Think about three great Jewish institutions. The 92nd Street Y, which has host speakers for dozens and dozens of years. I was the second most frequently invited speaker after Elie Wiesel. Yeah. Temple Emmanuel, the Vatican of New York City reform Judaism, and an unnamed high school, Jewish high school. All three of them recently canceled me and wouldn't allow me to speak. Um, the Jewish high school had invited me to help train and educate their students on how to deal with anti-Semitism on campus by using more speech rather than ever censoring. Uh, the, the 92nd Street Y, I uh, was uh, gonna be giving a speech on how to defend Israel 
and Temple Emmanuel, I did a whole series on defending characters from the Bible. And all three canceled me and all for the same reason. They said, we don't for a moment believe that you did anything wrong in regard to the Jeffrey Epstein case. We don't believe it for a second. We don't believe you did anything wrong in representing him. We don't think you did anything wrong in terms of having contact with any of the victims. We don't believe any of that, but we don't want trouble. And there are people on our board who don't want you speaking to the students, speaking to the congregants, speaking to anybody else. So here I have been canceled by three major Jewish institutions trying to educate young people about Israel and about free speech with no semblance of due process, no concern for the rights of the students and others to hear what I have to say, simply because they know I have been falsely accused of something I didn't do. So we can bring it very, very close to home. Shame on the 92nd Street Y, which has held itself out for years, probably all three of us have spoken there many times for canceling a speaker based on a false accusation. But that's where we are today. That's where cancel culture has taken us. And, and this is, Mark, to your point, um, we have a First Amendment law that is really excellent. There, there are cases that um, where the government does engage in censorship, sometimes without redress by the Supreme Court, but quite frankly, those are few and far between. When government has unduly suppressed protesters over the past months, for example, the ACLU has easily uh, won remedies in court. But we cannot truly enjoy and exercise meaningful free speech, either in terms of the opportunity to convey ideas or, as Alan underscores, it also includes a right to receive information and ideas. We cannot truly do that unless we also have a free speech culture. Yes. Those who wield cultural power, institutions such as the ones Alan has named, the social media companies that we've been talking about, academic institutions, and the individuals who wield power and, dare I say, should wield leadership within them, are willing to take, and I have to say courageous, it shouldn't take that much courage, uh, to stand up firmly for the value of free speech and against the cancellation pressures. I agree with you, Floyd. I wouldn't want that to be mandated by any kind of government regulation. Uh, Mark, I've thought about the public utility common carrier model. I'm very troubled by it because I don't trust government getting its tentacles into communications companies. Uh, but that doesn't mean our hands are tied, that we shouldn't yield to the, pre the sensorial pressures that are being exerted by powerful social forces. We have to raise the voices for free speech. And, and all of the same values and principles that, uh, that you talked about, Mark, that animate First Amendment law should be animating all of these cultural institutions and the publishers and the journalists. I agree. One of the problems here that both of you have articulated very powerfully is that institutions that should know better and even feel better, stronger about protection of the First Amendment or the protection of 
the dissemination of conflicting views on, on issues are have become so so weak at their core. I, I mean, I, I just uh, now I'm going back a full year, but 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 you know the, the New York Books fired its editor because he had allowed an article in by someone a Canadian talk show guy who had behaved badly with respect to women and was acquitted and the only case brought against him. But because they gave him space to say, I'm really not so bad, he wound up getting fired because of the amount of internal pressure. As sure. a, result, a Nation magazine apologized for running a poem uh, on, on the ground that it was insufficiently socially justice-oriented. It could yeah. be read as mocking uh, someone that, that, way, that was poor. And, and we do live in that world now. Look, uh, Alan. I agree with all of you, including Mark, and being very concerned about that world being one in which speech is overcome or prevented uh, far too easily. Floyd, you and I are the only people on this panel old enough to remember actual McCarthyism. And remember that McCarthyism, good people, good and decent people who opposed McCarthy didn't have the courage to stand up. And that's why people were fired from television shows. Remember the Goldbergs? That was a great television show. The husband was fired. The movie The Front, I think he, they had that character commit suicide. Uh, who do you think was in the front? Woody Allen. And what do you think happened to Woody Allen? He published a memoir recently and the book company that contracted with him to publish because of internal pressure canceled the publication. Fortunately, my publisher uh, um, was willing to take over and publish uh, his book. You can agree or disagree with the accusations against Woody Allen, but he's a great writer. He's one of the greatest filmmakers of our generation. And for him to be canceled based on something that is not only unproven, but ultimately unprovable um, is, is, is just a form. Of, but the important point, Floyd, that you made that I want to really underline is the lack of courage is what leads to McCarthyism. McCarthyism did not succeed because of Joseph McCarthy or thugs like him. Those people were not the real villains of McCarthyism. The real villains of McCarthyism were the good people, the decent people who didn't have the courage to stand up and who said to people very politely, look, I agree with you. I don't think you did anything wrong, but I, I just, my stockholders, my shareholders, my friends, my wife, uh, my customers, those are the villains of McCarthyism and those are today's villains too. The presidents of universities who are decent people who are saying, I, I agree with you, but I can't stand up to the students. Yeah. They will make our lives miserable. What today needs is courage. Yeah. The answer to the cancel culture is courage. And thank God there are people like you and Nadine who really instill courage in people and make them feel guilty if they don't have the courage to stand up, not only to First Amendment principles, but to First Amendment culture. Well, Alan, thank you so much for saying that. And I do what I can, but I'm gonna be quite frank as I have been in other public forums that I don't have the courage 
uh, to say certain things that I think I should have an absolute, I do have an absolute First Amendment right to do it because I know that the controversy that would erupt, for example, teaching the N-word even in a Supreme Court case, it's just not worth it even in terms of my pedagogical goals. So uh, I admit to uh, being uh, allowing myself to be be self-censored, I guess, because I know I have only a certain amount of opportunity to gain public attention, and I'm not going to use it on that. Um, this summer, there, the Cato Institute released a survey that it did together with YouGov that showed that 62% of Americans all across the political and ideological spectrum uh, self-censor, do not convey their ideas about important political issues yeah. for yeah. fear that they will suffer economic reprisal or the denial of educational opportunities in the case of students. And Alan, going back to McCarthyism, uh, there was a comparison done. Somebody else had done a survey going back to McCarthyism like every five years or so, how much people were self-censoring. And there's some evidence that there is more self-censorship now than there was at the height of McCarthyism. And to show that the fears are not irrational, that same Cato YouGov survey showed that um, more than half of self-described strong Democrats thought that people should be fired from their jobs if they had made a campaign contribution to Donald Trump. And 34% of self-described strong Republicans believe that people should be fired from their jobs if they made a campaign contribution to Joe Biden. So speak wow. at peril. It's, it's rational to self-sense. So, so let me be a little critical um, uh, of you, uh, my former student, who I love dearly. Yeah, please do. Uh, I need to I, your back and forth. I think you should. I'll represent you, Nadine. I think you should be teaching what you want to teach and have the courage of your convictions. Now, there's an urban myth. It may be a true story, maybe a false story. Floyd may know it. He may even have been in the courtroom that day. But you all remember the case, uh, the Cohen case. It where was an ACLU case, and it did happen. That, I've read the transcript. It really did happen. That yeah. I know Warren Berger wrote a letter to the lawyer saying, we all know the F word. Uh, we all know that it was on the back of his jacket. It would demean the Supreme Court for you to say the F word in the court itself. And the lawyer got up and shouted out the F word and said, there, I've said it. The temple hasn't crumbled. And if he hadn't said it, he would have legitimated the argument. And aren't you legitimating the argument of the other side by not saying it and not incurring the controversy? I hate to disagree with you, but here's one. Maybe it's a difference in personalities, difference in styles. Uh, maybe I like controversy more than you do, and I welcome it. But uh, but but you're a very influential uh, a person in the world, and um, why aren't you saying the things that you want to say? You think they're right to say. You think they're principled. You're not doing it just to provoke, simply out of fear of generating controversy. It's not out of the fear. It's that I don't think it's a good use of my time to be. Okay. I will distract from the substance. That was Mel Nimmer, by the way, acting as a volunteer ACLU lawyer and. He was a great guy. I love Mel. He was terrific. Yeah. Oh, and and look, all all of us have, all of us see this, 
uh, have seen it in our teaching. Uh, I, uh, even when we wind up doing what I'll say is the right thing, the fact that we think we have to think about these things tells us how far we've come as a society uh, in a, a dangerous way. So you know, I was teaching a, a case uh, uh, not so long ago uh, in which the language in the case was uh, uh, deeply offensive and aimed at gays. Um, Supreme Court case. Um, and the question I had to myself that, that I even thought about it to myself, the words are in the opinion. And I, I had to make a decision, at least that was the way I viewed it, about using the words from the Supreme Court opinion in the class that I taught. And with no great bravery, I wound up doing it, but, but it has sort of stayed with me as a sign of how far we've, we've come as a society mm -hmm. that it took a, a decision, uh, a willingness, a brave willingness uh, after analyzing the whole situation to even use language from the Supreme Court opinion itself. And that is where we are. Well, let me give you a real world example. I mean, Randy Kennedy at Harvard, who wrote an entire book with the whole word. Um, it, by the way, some people have told me that they have been getting real pushback for even saying the N word, even saying that, right? Because everybody knows what it is. So you're now supposed to say a reviled racist epithet. Uh, but Randy wrote a whole book about it, and uh, he recently uh, co-authored an article with Eugene Volokh uh, in which they make the argument that there's a professional responsibility on the part of law professors to have uh, students be equipped to handle this language because the language is legally relevant uh, in many kinds of cases, including cases involving hate crime and civil rights and so forth. And thanks to the uh, technological wonders of uh, search engines, they were able to document the thousands of times that the word appears in Supreme Court opinions and Supreme Court briefs. And, you know, every liberal justice has used it. Every racial minority justice has used it. The ACLU, the NAACP. And it was a fabulous article. Um, they had a very, very, very hard time getting it published. It was almost universally rejected. And then they did a faculty um, seminar about this piece at UCLA where Eugene teaches and the entire black faculty boycotted the, the seminar. Uh, I talked to some of my research assistants about this because they're current students and I wanted to take their temperature, Floyd, how, how do they react to these issues? And one of them told me he was working in the sex, the hate crimes unit of the Manhattan DA's office this summer. And the training materials, of course, include a lot of references to the N-word because it's used as evidence to demonstrate the discriminatory motive or intent, which is necessary to have something treated, a crime treated as a hate crime. And there was protest on the part of the interns. They demanded that that word be expurgated 
from the training materials and get and you know he said the lawyer who heads that that division was absolutely horrified how can they do their job uh, but whoever that person's supervisor was capitulated to the pressure so we're now going to see this migrate from law schools we've already seen it migrate into uh, corporations and it's going to affect the, the legal culture and and and, and legal rights uh, as well and a related real life story is a former colleague of mine, now deceased, who was a famous professor of criminal law at another <clears throat> university, scoured every single criminal law casebook that came out every year to find a criminal law casebook that did not include the subject of rape. So he could assign the book without having to assign a book that includes rape and then say, I'm not teaching rape because he said, as a white male, I could not teach rape. And I have taught it, and that has resulted in people accusing me of teaching rape in a way that justified my own rape of a young, you know, all that has, has, has now come out that my, my very teaching. Uh, and, you know, you, if you're gonna teach rape and you're gonna teach students how to defend or prosecute rape cases, jurors will believe that women who are dressed for sex uh, don't deserve to be protected. There are jurors who believe that. There are jurors who believe all these sexist arguments. And you have to give the students the, the ability and the background to be able to respond to these arguments. For, so from every feminist liberal perspective, you have to be able to analyze these issues honestly. And today, uh, a, a male, uh, even I have to tell you, I accuse you of lack of courage. I didn't mean to do oh, that. No, no, I, I like no, that. I welcome the construction. I, I showed the same lack of courage. In the last three or four years, when I did teach rape, and I wouldn't not teach it, I always invited a woman, often Nancy Gertner, or another woman who was well known for their very different views and very feminist views, to teach it along with me. And that helped. And of course, the, the women who taught it with me got these extraordinarily high ratings, mm -hmm. and I got these zero, zero, zero ratings because I, you know, presented the opposite point of view. Uh, and 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 it's so much easier just not to teach it. It's so easy to be a law professor who stays away from controversial subjects and gets the best ratings, uh, because you know often ratings are not based on your ability as a teacher; they're based on whether the students approve of what you're teaching them. It's just become harder and harder to become a, uh, an honest teacher this day. these days. Um, less in law school. I used to teach a college course on where does your morality come from. I would pick 15 students out of 500 applicants and present them with very difficult moral dilemmas. And the students loved it. Uh, I taught a course with Steven Pinker on taboo, on subjects you cannot speak about on university. I'm not sure any of those courses can be taught today. And that's a loss for the students. So I'm listening to the three of you. Um, and I hear what you're saying. And you know, Nadine, I wish I had used your phrase, free speech culture. Mm -hmm. because That was really what I was talking about. I'm annoyed at myself that I didn't think of it, but I'm so glad you used that phrase because mm -hmm. free speech culture goes beyond simply free speech as it applies to the world of government and law, 
that is protected by government. We don't want the government to ever curtail free speech. But my concern was the way in which America has been, has lost a sense of free speech. Mm-hmm. You can believe anything you want about me, but at least you understand that from my own perspective, this comes out of a liberalism that I've, that I've lived with my entire life. And I do want to, I want still want one of you to give an example of an instance in which the word it's lie or lie or whatever, or give me an example where some right wing, some left wing group, Alan, at the Y or on college campuses have in some way been restricted in their speech from people on the right. It's not like I don't think there is, you know, I, I loved Nadine's, she quoted a poll which shows that 60 some odd Democrats think that people should be fired for voting for Donald Trump, but there's 30% Republicans think people should be fired for voting for Joe Biden. It, it's, it, for me, it's insane. And as I listen to what you three are talking about, it makes me very sad. I think it is so sad here. Each of you give me another anecdote for how you felt restricted in what you could say and what you could teach. But I do feel, and Alan, I want you to answer this first. Yeah. Can you give me an example, which is the equivalent of Facebook saying that whenever Donald said, Donald Trump said about health and the COVID, whatever it is, they have the right to put up that it's a lie. Is there something equivalent that was done to people on the left. Well, of course, but it was during the McCarthy period. No, 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 I'm talking about now. I wanna make a point. I wanna make a point in response to what you're saying. And the point is this, the right is no better than the left. Uh, The hard right is no better than the hard left. The censorial right is no better than the censorial left. Today, conservatives on campus are the champions of free speech. Why? Because they're the ones that are being denied free speech. Okay, okay. Oh wait, this isn't about whether you're conservative or liberal. This is a question about what is the, the, to use again Nadine's phrase, what is the free speech culture today in America? And although there are right-wing groups and there are white supremacist groups, they're they're not the ones who are driving this problem. All the problems that Nadine and Floyd and you described, all of them were driven from the far left. No, I, I want to disagree, disagree with you. that. I want to disagree with you. Uh, there is no free speech culture in America, um, and there never has been. I wish I had entitled my book. I entitled Cancel Culture, The Latest Attack on Free Speech. I should have entitled the Council Culture, The Latest Attack on Free Speech Culture. But let me explain something to you. To, I think it's very important that your viewers understand that. Nobody believes in free speech except the four of us on this panel. I overstate that. But <laughs> The vast majority of Americans believe in free speech for me, but not for thee. Yeah. That is true, right? It yeah. is true of the left. There is no free speech culture that is widespread in America. It's a very selfish culture. That's why I mentioned the liberals, the people on the left, even the Stalinists were in favor of free speech during the McCarthy period. They wanted free speech so that they could suppress everybody else's free speech. Today on the hard right, they want free speech because they're the ones that are being suppressed and they would be happy to suppress free speech 
on the left if they had the power to do so. So I think all of us have a job to do. We have to create a free speech culture in this country because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It does not exist. You know, when I used to teach my classes in, in, in college and law school, I would ask students, how many of you believe in free speech? Every hand goes up. Mm -hmm. Then I'd start with a list of exceptions. Mm -hmm. How many of you would ban the N-word? Hands. How many of you would ban Holocaust denial? Hands. How many of you? And then I go up. By the end of the class, nobody was in favor. Everybody had an exception. And so the, the myth that we are a country that believes in the culture of free speech, and I'm so glad, Nadine, you introduced that concept today, in the culture of free speech is a myth. Free speech is a tactic. And I think people today on the hard left are writing about that. There are academics who are writing about it, saying free speech is a tactic. It's paternalistic, it's patriarchal, it's colonial, it's all of those things. We don't need free speech, it helps white privilege, all of that. They have a point. They have a point in the sense that free speech has been used widely as a tactic by the right against the left, by the left against the right. But the people who actually would literally die or come close to dying to defend views that they disagree with are always few and far between in any in any culture. I created a First Amendment club a few years ago. I wrote a series of articles about it, and I said to become a member of the First Amendment club, you have to join in a protest of something that you so fundamentally disagree with. It literally makes you throw up. Arya Nair passed it. Uh, Nadine passed it. The ACLU back in the day passed it. Uh, but today, most people don't. They say, oh, Maplethorpe. Yeah, you know, not my taste, but I would defend his right to have his. That's easy. You have to fundamentally, if you're a feminist, you have to fundamentally get out there and disagree with the most sexist kind of speech. And if you're an environmentalist, you have to fundamentally get out there and defend the most environmentally unfriendly speech. Only then do you get to be in the First Amendment Club. And our meetings are usually held in telephone booths. <laughs> Nadine, you said you disagreed with me. How? Oh, because, and thank you. Uh, uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, a wonderful organization Great. on its advisory council. It was co-founded by Alan's and my good friend, Harvey Silverglate. Um, they keep track of sensorial incidents on campuses all over the country, and they update it regularly. And I recently looked at the page that gives examples of uh, predominantly conservative campuses or com campuses in predominantly conservative communities where there's been a tremendous amount of pressure, including calls for firing, uh, investigations, deplatforming of people with liberal messages. And what I do agree with, and, and not to mention Donald Trump and others on the conservative end of the uh, Republican Party have engaged in a lot of sensorial tactics, uh, which I think play into the hard left approach that uh, Alan was alluding to, that this it's not really a matter of principle. It all comes down to power. And even if you disagree with how how Donald Trump is wielding his sensorial power, he's reinforcing this common notion that, as Alan says, it's a tactic and whoever has the power uh, uses it. Boy, I found that teaching a class last year at Yale uh, in which the language was anti-gay language, language in the Supreme Court opinion. Um, I spent more time than I'm proud of spending 
in advance of the class deciding to use the language or not and was saved by a student innocently and in the best way saying, but when this was said, he quoted the words because the words are relevant. Uh -huh. uh, but but the, the idea, this is not an apologia, I'm just saying, the idea that I felt that I, I had to think it out mm -hmm. whether or not to use language mm -hmm. from a Supreme Court opinion, mm -hmm. which was very relevant mm -hmm. uh, in the case itself, tells us uh, Absolutely. where we are. And, and I, I'm taking Alan's point, and I think he has shored up my courage, but it would never occur to me to do it without an explanation in advance. Oh a justification in advance, which in the past you you wouldn't have needed. You know, and on the issue of censorship on campus from uh, the conservative side, Mark, I think in fairness, the conservative media have done a much better job at pinpointing liberal or so-called progressive excesses uh, in censorship on campus. Uh, the liberal media is not making this a cause the same way that uh, Fox and Breitbart and the College Fix and so far. Uh, you're right, you're right, you're right. That's a, ter that's a terrible mistake. What I am not saying mm -hmm. is if there are good guys, there are conservatives, and bad guys, they're the far left progressives who are trying to stifle free speech. I think Alan said it so perfectly. It's across the board. But at the moment, Alan, yeah. Yeah. the culture we are living in, in my mind, you know, I hope every one of you is upset that Abigail Schreier, who's a, a liberal writer, liberal Jew, it turns out, Abigail Schreier writes a book about what is being done to kids with hormones in sex change situations. Mm -hmm. And that book, Amazon won't publish the book and Target won't sell the book. I don't want to live in that kind of free speech culture. Nadine. But let, me, let me be at the center on that one a little bit. Uh, the one area where I think I have a problem is when people are disseminating medical information that can be very, very harmful to people. Um, we do have an FDA, Federal Drug Administration. We do have restrictions on what pharmaceutical companies can say in advertising. And I'm not in favor of banning um, uh, any of this, but I'd be interested what the, my other two wonderful colleagues would say about a doctor who gets on television and advocates medical procedures or the lack of medical procedures, which people might follow and could really, really do them harm. Um, and and uh, uh, obviously in the, in the COVID context, we understand that some people have, have done that. Is there any room for restricting the false? Remember, we're all content neutral people, but when it comes to medical information, false content information, because I don't know about this book, but I can imagine it containing very dangerous false medical information that would prevent a parent from allowing a child who was transgender to transition. And I have two friends, two dear friends who have grandchildren who were transgender and they had all the procedures and it just changed their life miraculously. They turned from suicidally depressed to the two happiest young, wonderful children. So I, I, 
what would you think if there were a medical book that discouraged people from doing that based on false medical information that the consensus of medical authority thought was false? We always worry about consensus, but what, what do my distinguished colleagues think? Is, should there be any restrictions on that kind of thing? I'm not sure what, what you mean by restrictions, though. Uh, you, you mean self-imposed restrictions that the publisher should decide not to publish it? Yeah, that's number one. And number two, could there, become, could there come a point when the government would intervene if a doctor got on television and gave advice that was extremely dangerous, not only to a person, but to public health? I mean, just take an obvious example. Somebody gets on television and says, masks just don't work. Rip them off. Don't wear them. They're tyrannical. They, uh, tyrannical is protected speech. But then if the, if, if the doctor goes further and says, it doesn't help at all. It doesn't stop the spread of the illness. And all of medical consensus was the other way. Is there ever a role of government in coming in and saying, we're going to be like the FDA and we're not going to let you, if you're a doctor sitting there with your uniform and an MD patch, we're not going to let you say that on television. Or would you just leave it to the medical authorities, the ethical authorities and private people? That's my question. I would do the second one. Um... Uh, the, the harder question for me, I, I thought you could have a third alternative, is that how much of a public debate should there be about this? Would yeah, you, uh, should. I should. Mean, you know, should you, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm, the answer becomes too easy for us anyway. Uh, but but uh, I mean, if, if there is a book that uh, advocates something which is, dangerous and does not even say, to, to, to make the point easy, that it's dangerous, uh, A, the publisher shouldn't publish it, but uh, once it's out, it ought to be exposed. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's the... And I, I think the bar for uh, an FDA type restriction, Alan, should be so high uh, that it's demonstrably false, not potentially misleading. And I mean, because most of what, including um, uh, the utility of masks, as we know, there's scientific information and advice has 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 been quite volatile on oh, that yeah. topic of just this morning there was an op-ed in the wall street journal that one of my former students sent me i haven't had time to fact check it and by the way i now feel i have to fact check everything no matter I how i read it and that's actually the old, the best response rather than relying on anybody to do our labeling for us but uh this made the argument that there are a lot of valid plausible uh claims and information about masks about all of the covid treatments that are being denied platforms not only on social media but in publishing houses and the person who wrote it had very impressive scientific credentials so uh i I think, and he made an interesting argument, which hadn't occurred to me before, um, that a number of these online companies have a conflict of interest in this. I mean, I'm not going to attribute this motive to them, but is it an interesting that uh, the shutdown and the pandemic actually has been very good for their business? <laughs> so we have to have, you know, take that into account. Mm -hmm. um, 
Now, uh, the question about um, uh, about conservative um, censorship on campus, um, I you know I think that it real the conservatives have done a much better PR job of wrapping themselves in the free speech mantle. They Agreed. don't deserve it, but they because they, it's situational, it's result oriented. But why are not the liberal media outlets, you know, the New York Times, CNN, why good, aren't they making this a crusade? Because their young people don't believe it. Because the people in their editorial room and their young news people don't believe it. They think we're old, stodgy liberals. We're our grandfather's liberal. They're, you know, this is not your grandfather's First Amendment, they told me over and over again. We don't believe, we're not First Amendment people. We're people who believe in uh, equality and all of the other things and the environment. But First Amendment, that's your issue. That's not my issue. I hear that from people on the liberal side. So it's not just that the conservatives are doing a better job because it's situational. I agree with that. I think the heart and soul of a lot of traditional left-wing young people who are now in the newsrooms of the New York Times is not there because the ones who believe in that have gone to the Wall Street Journal. And, and or they've gone to the New York Times like Barry Weiss and had a bad experience. So um, I think it's not an accident that the New York Times is no longer pushing so hard on free speech culture. Okay, um, I wanna say this again. I'm not saying one side is good and one side is bad. I know that. I believe basically, I love the way Alan described it, that when you dig down, it, People are not as committed to free speech as we would like to believe. And they certainly are not committed to free speech the way I was taught when I was in my late teens and 20s and 30s. And I have not heard yet from any of you an example where Twitter has said it's a lie to something that has come from the left. But Alan, I wanna ask you a specific question about anti-Israel speech. What about a group like Breaking the Silence, which is former soldiers speaking of the immorality of the IDF, or yeah. Students for Justice in Palestine, saying the IDF soldiers shoot Palestinian children for sport? Or what yeah. about a Palestinian extremist, Leila Khaled, who was a terrorist who kidnapped a plane, who was part of Black September, which was responsible for the massacre of 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics? Does free speech, in your opinion, does the free speech culture, thank you, Nadine, does the free speech culture cover their right to speak on college campuses? Absolutely. And um, I strongly support uh, students who oppose those points of view, using it as an opportunity to tell the truth. The, I, I, I go all over the country urging pro-Israel students never to try to censor any speech. Right. In fact, the speeches that I've been censored on, the 92nd Street Y, particularly the Jewish high school, uh, my message, I spoke yesterday to another group of Jewish high schools around the country, because I speak to a lot of Jewish high school students now on the issue of preparing yourself for what you're gonna face in college. My first message to them is don't ever try to censor opposing speech. Use it as an educational moment. Make sure your speakers, you, other people, have an opportunity to come on campus and use that speech as an occasion for correcting the record 
and telling a speech. If they won't allow your speakers to come on the campus, then you can raise the roof, but don't try to stop the others. So let me give you an example. So Berkeley had 10 speeches in a row sponsored by departments calling for boycotting of Israel, calling Israel genocidal, calling, et cetera. So a student group at Berkeley invited me to speak and give a contrary point of view. Berkeley, a public university, refused to allow me to speak unless one of two conditions were met. I got a department to invite me, which no department would, because all the departments support BDS and are opposed to Israel. Or I wait eight weeks, which is a time when the students are all gone and the whole focus of what was going on would be dissipated. So I prepared a lawsuit to file against Berkeley because it's a public university. Of course, Erwin Chemerinsky came in and rescued the day. He's the dean of the University of California Law School at Berkeley. He immediately invited me. And I spoke. I got a packed full uh, audience. I, I, I said I was going to call on the prote protesters, of course, many protests, including Antifa. And I said, I invite all the protesters in. Most of them wouldn't come in. But I said, any protester who comes in, you get the right to speak first, limited amount of time. And I will stay in the auditorium until I've answered every single question from a protester. Well, it turned out to be a good event. And I think students listened to you know, all sides. But don't protest ever the fact that Layla Khalid is going to be on the campus. You might, if she came on campus personally, privately, you might order, you might try to get her arrested because there's no statute of limitations on terrorism. Right. But she was doing it by remote. The students have a right to hear her point of view, but just insist and demand that the students also have a right to hear your point of view. Make them the censors. Don't ever be the censors yourself. That's been my message. And that's the message that a Jewish high school recently censored me from giving to their students. Do the two of you agree with Alan or disagree with Alan? Oh, I completely agree with Alan. Um, and it's one of the reasons I was doing a discussion recently with John McWhorter, whom I admire a lot, but I actually uh, disagreed with him when he said there are certain subjects that are illegitimate, they're just off the table. And, you know, he gave uh, some examples, I don't know, slavery being an example. Uh, and, and I said, John, you know, I respectfully disagree with you because especially the ideas that we think are the most nefarious and pernicious are the most most important for us to hear so that we can explain why they are pernicious. They're not going to disappear. And that's, you know, John Stuart Mill made that argument far more eloquently than I can, but it really stands the test of time. You've actually made it more eloquently than he did. Uh, but, uh, you know, talk about provocation. 20 years ago when I was teaching freshmen, I would assign them the essay written by Calhoun and another essay in defense of slavery. And they would make this argument. It was a, a, a horrible, but often superficially persuasive argument. The argument that they would make in favor of slavery is comparing the lives of Irish immigrants who came off the boat in New York and were treated as day laborers. They lived to 30 or 35 because nobody cared about them because nobody owned them. Whereas in the South, because people owned them, they lived longer, et cetera, et cetera. The students would look and shake their heads and say, boy, that's, that's, a, that's a persuasive argument. And then I'd have to, of course, explain to them why it wasn't, but I actually gave them essays in favor of slavery so that they understand all sides of the issue. The best way of defeating an argument is exposing it, putting it out there. Don't suppress it, don't hide it. Assign the students Mein Kampf 
and tear it apart. Don't just say Mein Kampf is one of these things yeah. that nobody ever have a chance to read. Floyd, both Alan and Nadine have said in one way or another that unfortunately, America at the moment does not have a free speech culture. Do you agree with them? Look, I, I think we've never had it. Uh, uh, it's always been a minority view, <clears throat> even when the law was developing <clears throat> in a more favorable way. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a speech offense, speech uh, at the least bothers and sometimes gets people very angry. It's one of the reasons it's important to have a First Amendment. Mm -hmm. But, but we shouldn't be surprised that, that, that people get furious about this or that position uh, being And one of the purposes of teaching in this area or writing in this area <clears throat> is to persuade, uh, to, to, to let people know, I mean, how in the world can you, can you defend allowing this speech or that speech. And what one of the, the, the socially desirable effects, I like to think, uh, of, of teaching, as I do, uh, First Amendment courses uh, is, is trying, not always succeeding, but trying uh, to, to have students leave the course, but not just a better knowledge of it, but a, a more devoted feeling in support of it. What all three of you have said to one extent or another is that as laudable as free speech is, at the moment, we do not live in a free speech culture. Sure. What I'd like each of you to do, Nadine, Floyd, and Alan, is speak for a moment or two about what you want our viewers to take away from this. What would you hope they feel they do in, in what way would you like the facts that you have illuminated, especially the assault on free speech in terms of culture? What do you want people to take away from? And I begin with you, Nadine. Those of us who passionately defend freedom of speech as a matter of culture, as well as law, do so despite the fact that we recognize that speech can and does do a great deal of harm. It can wound feelings. It can incite violence. It can disparage individual dignity. But I completely agree with the United States Supreme Court when it said, we defend free speech precisely because it is so powerful. The power to do enormous good as well as potential harm. And when you consider the potential harm of speech, you have to ask yourself, but what about the potential harm of censorship? Would you entrust to the government, whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's Joe Biden, whether it's anybody else, to make decisions about which ideas the government official considers to be so dangerous that you as an individual should be shielded from it. Do mm -hmm. you trust a powerful titan of industry to make those decisions 
for you. For all of the potential harm of free speech, the potential harm of censorship dwarfs it. Thank you so much, Nadine. Floyd, your closing comment. Well, Nadine was so persuasive, I'm inclined <laughs> to give her. <laughs> right, you said it all, Nadine. <laughs> Anything you'd like, Floyd. All right, Seth. Uh, look, I think we have to recognize that uh, free speech is not always constructive and it is not, on, not always societally beneficial in its impact. Uh, people are persuaded by false speech sometimes. Right. Uh, uh, the, the world, countries, communities, parents, uh, sometimes act in a manner which winds up to be detrimental in one way or another, sometimes severely detrimental. That said, a broad protection of free speech across the board uh, is as a pragmatic matter, the, the best way to get to truth and even more important to me than that is the best way to get to a more just society. Mm -hmm. And that, that the, the, the harm of speech suppression more than almost anything uh, is, is not the psychic harm to the speaker, the would-be speaker, but, but the, the, the on the ground and continuing harm to the public uh, as a whole uh, in, in limiting the widest range of views expressed by the people with the widest uh, range of uh, persuasive ability. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Okay, Alan, you're going to get the last word. I just want to say one thing as a footnote, because I don't want people to feel that you and that you or anyone on this panel in some way deprecated Abigail Schreier's book. I know a lot about it. I wish you would. Oh, I have no yeah. idea. Yeah, I, you should take the list. I don't. I, don't, I, mean, I use it as an example. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you sum it up for us. Talk about what do you want people to take away from, from the discussion about free speech culture? I want everybody listening to close their eyes for one full minute and imagine the alternative world to free speech. Imagine what the alternative to free speech would look like. This really carries forward on what both Nadine and, and Floyd said. Uh, and then I would ask them to consider a variation on Winston Churchill's theme when he was asked about democracy. He said, the worst possible system for governing except for all the others that have been tried over time. I would say the same about free speech. I share the concerns of both of my distinguished colleagues uh, for, the, for the, ver the vices of free speech. They, sticks and stones, can break your bones, but names can really, really also harm you. People have been harmed terribly by free speech. It's not free. It's very, very costly. Um, Lloyd, Floyd called it the best um, uh, approach. I call it the least worst approach. And I just think that even if you are critical of our world of free speech, it's so much less worse than its alternative the world where, as Nadine so beautifully put it, where government or titans of industry or presidents of universities or student leaders or others determine 
what is truth and what is falsity. So just imagine the alternative to free speech before you think about rejecting it as the culture that should be dominant in America and the free world. The three of you are out of this world. And, you know, I put this panel together and I hoped we'd have a substantive discussion. And you have, you have far, far, far exceeded any expectation I had. If I could, I would jump through the camera. I'd kiss every single one of you. <laughs> no, no, not during COVID. Nadine, it's been a pleasure meeting you. I hope this is only the first of many times. Me too, thank we you. It is always wonderful to see you, Floyd. And Alan, as always, it's fabulous to be able to present your thoughts. I thank every one of you. I wish you just happiness, health, and success as we begin a new calendar year and we will all see each other in the near future. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much, look forward. Be healthy, be safe. The thoughts of Floyd Abrams, Alan Dershowitz and Nadine Strassen on issues of free speech, hate speech, cancel culture. And again, as Nadine said, on the free speech culture in America. And there's a question of whether it really exists or not. And what an honor it was for me to host such three outstanding figures on the American scene. And I hope their insights have given you real food for thought. The assault on free speech and cancel culture is a threat to free thinking, the expression of free ideas and the rights of minorities, including and if you know the reference, the canary in the coal mine, especially a threat to American Jews. As always, I invite you to be in touch with me with any thoughts or comments you may have to anything said on this edition of L'Chaim. Please email me at rabbigolub at jbstv.org. Or you can write me at Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. And please remember, you can now listen to L'Chaim as a podcast. So until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. L'Chaim, my friends, to life. L'Chaim is a presentation of Jewish education in media. We would be pleased to send a complimentary DVD of this program to anyone who wishes to support JBS with a tax-deductible gift of $36, double chai, or more. Simply visit the JBS website at jbstv.org and click on the Donate button to make a donation by PayPal or your credit card. And please indicate the program for which you would like a DVD. Or you can send your tax-deductible check to JBS, Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. Or you can call the JBS pledge line at 833-MY-JBS-TV. That's 833-695-2788. And again, please remember to indicate which program you would like to receive with our compliments. We thank you for your kind support.